0: Uh, We're in a series called Designer Sex, and we're talking about gender, sexuality, and good news, the good news of the gospel in the midst of all that. And uh, I just want to tell you that this is, uh, today, uh, one of the hardest sermons that I've had to prepare for because of the complexity of the issue and and so forth. And there's absolutely no way that I could do the entire uh, subject uh, justice uh, today because of the massive implications of everything that is uh, talked about, uh, all of the objections that are used in opposition to it, how much it's, it's in front of our uh, culture right now. Uh, same-sex attraction, uh, the gay community, uh, homosexuality, uh, whatever word you want to use is, um, is an issue today. And people who are in opposition to Uh, The idea of gay marriage or homosexuality um, are often labeled as bigots, as hateful, as any of those things. And and I want you to know that uh, my goal through this sermon today is to communicate, um, is to help us all understand the biblical viewpoint of sexuality and to urge us to deeply love people who disagree. So I want to try and convince you of the biblical viewpoint, but I also wanna to try to convince you of the love that you need to show to people who would say that you're hateful, who would say that, uh, that you're a bigot, who would uh, take away things from you, who would accuse you of all kinds of things. Remembering this, that Jesus was accused, Jesus was abused, He was crucified, he's killed, he was put into a grave. But then again, he rose on the third day, and he has overcome all of that. And as a result, you also can overcome the stigma of being attached to a biblical viewpoint on sexuality. I want to tell you this up front. Homosexuality is not uh, people's biggest problem. Same-sex attraction is not your biggest issue. It's not the biggest problem. Your biggest issue, if you don't know Jesus, is to actually know Him. That's the first step. It's to know Him, it's to submit to Him and to say, what you say is true, and I need to fall in line with that. Receive Jesus Christ and allow Him to change your life, submitting to His will. And I will tell you this, that if you say that you believe in Him and yet you do not submit to His will, you simply prove that you don't know Jesus. You're proving that you don't know Jesus. I mean, you should read through 1 John over and over again. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Walk as Jesus walked. Now, does this mean that we're going to be perfect? Because obviously, one of the main uh, contentions with the biblical viewpoint on sexuality is how can you point to other people and say, like, you shouldn't sin like that when you are full of sin. It's one of the street-level arguments against uh, biblical sexuality, you don't keep the rule, and so why should I have to keep the rule? It's a very good question. And the, the truth is is this, is that many Christians have presented themselves as perfect. I saw uh, the gal um, Davis, I'm forgetting her first name, she was on Fox News, and she was talking about her ordeal in Kentucky as a county clerk, and she was expressing her Christianity and I don't, I'm not sure whether she meant this or not, but one of the things that she was saying, she was saying, sure, I, I screw up in some little ways and I, I have some problems, you know, I, you know, I do this or that. It's, it, it, she essentially is exhibiting something that all of us do and that is we minimize our sin and we maximize everybody else's sin. We minimize what, what we're doing, and we maximize what everybody else is doing. But Jesus says, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery. If you hate your brother, you have you might as well have killed him, and in fact, you're going to be held to account for murder, because that's what anger is, that's what lust is. And so those aren't little sins, those are big sins, so when we come to our culture and we say, somehow you're a bigger sinner than I am, it's just not true, it's theological uninformed, and it's ignorant. It's absolutely ignorant, and Christians as a people suffer from this ignorance while we point our finger at people and say, uh, all of y'all are jacked up, and we've got this together. But clearly, we can see from the news, uh, from our own lives, from our churches, we're just as messed up. We're just as messed up. And (laughs) The definition of a Christian is not someone who is perfect and never sins. The definition of a Christian is somebody who repents when they sin. It's someone who is a repenter, acknowledging our sin on a regular basis. What should characterize Christians is not perfection but repentance. It's people who say this, I no longer have to fear uh, God because God has sent Jesus Christ and he has gone to the cross for me, he's been crucified, he's paid for my sin, and what he asks of me is just to acknowledge that he's right and I'm wrong and receive his forgiveness on a regular basis. That's what's required of us. Here's the problem is that uh, David Kinneman wrote a book called "UnChristian," And one of the top things that 16- to 29-year-olds say about Christians that, is that we are anti-homosexual. Not anti-homosexuality, the act itself, but we are anti-homosexual. This means that we're anti-people. Even the ridiculous statement, hate the sin but love the sinner, still doesn't apply. We're still not even fulfilling that. And what's coming across is that we hate people, not that we deeply love them because Jesus loved us, because God demonstrates his own love for us. And while we were still sinners, he died for us. And yet we don't communicate that. And we say that all of these other people are so messed up. And it's, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. So what our task is today, if I haven't made it clear yet, is to understand what biblical sexuality is. It's to understand that none of us meet that requirement in its fullness, but to understand that it is still sin. Porn, affairs, lust, you name it. Same-sex attraction itself is not a sin. The temptation isn't a sin. It's the engagement with it. We ourselves have these very same things in our church. We're suffering from these things as well. We can't point our finger at anybody and say, you should be perfect because the truth is we can't be perfect just the same. When it comes to how we view the scriptures, it's it's really important that we understand what's true and what isn't true. If I know that I'm overdrawn in my account, my bank account, and yet I continue to spend money as though I do have money in my account, I'm avoiding the truth, and I'm racking up a debt. So it doesn't matter what I think about it. It doesn't matter if I feel like I actually have money in there, but I actually don't. What remains true is that I don't have money in my account. When it comes to God's law, it doesn't doesn't fully matter how I feel. It matters who God is and what He wants from me or what I need to repent of. It doesn't matter how I feel about that. It has everything to do with what God says. And Christians for uh, several years now, especially within the last five to 10 years, have slowly been slipping down a hill. And so when um, various things come up, as far as the, equ- the equality of marriage, as um, when it comes to homosexual marriage or gay marriage, Many Christians have been in support of this. Many Christians have have supported this idea that that, that that should be allowed. Kevin DeYoung, an author and pastor, has some really great questions in regards to this. When he says, essentially, Christian, when you've changed your Facebook profile picture to be in support of this, Are you also going to support your brothers and sisters in Christ when their accreditation is taken away, when their rights are stomped on, when their businesses are taken from them, when their jobs are removed from them? Will you also support your Christian brothers and sisters in Christ when those things take place? Because I can tell you this, that that is already happening and it will continue to happen in greater numbers. Our fight is not on a political scene. We don't have a fight. What we have is we have the message of the gospel to bring truth. God's word clearly communicates what should be because it is the way to human flourishing. Christian or not, God's way is best. It's called common grace. Common grace is is, uh, the sun shining on us, rain that's come after a long drought My grass is very green right now. I'm very excited about that. But guess what? My non-Christian friend's grass is also green. And guess what? That rain came from God. It's common grace. God has given that to us. God's common grace comes through his law as well. And God's common grace preserves our society to some degree or another. God's common grace comes to us when we all know and we have God's law written on our heart that says that murder is wrong and that stealing is wrong. Where did that rule come from other than we know that it's bad for society and we know inherently that it's wrong and that we shouldn't steal and that we shouldn't do all of these types of things? This is God's common grace that comes to us and it is included in the context of marriage. That In the context of marriage, there is only one kind of marriage, There's only one kind of marriage. It's the marriage that God has instituted. But let me just communicate here for a minute uh, from Romans chapter 1 why people would push that off and say, that's not true, that's not what I I want, how dare you judge me. Let me me set the stage here for just a moment on what this means and what this looks like. Romans chapter 1, if you'd turn there with me um, real quick. I want to be real clear about something and that is I want to be clear about the setting the context of this passage the Apostle Paul is going to talk to two, two groups of people he's primarily really talking to some Jewish people but it's also written to Gentiles so you've got Jewish which are essentially church people and you've got Gentiles which are non-church people you could call them uh, religious and secular Okay, so Romans chapter 1 is basically going to lay out the crux of the issue with all people, all of humanity, with all of us. All of us um, have a problem. The Apostle Paul, he announces the good news in verses 16 and 17. He's going to talk through a bunch of sin in chapter 1. Then chapter 2, he's going to talk through this secularized idea of sin but then he's going to add to that chapter two where he's going to talk to the Jews and say you're a bunch of hypocrites I'll just summarize it for you so he's going to say secular and religious both messed up then Romans chapter 3 verse 10 he's going to say there's no one righteous there's not even one and what Paul is trying to prove is that there is bad news there's bad news all of us are sinners and so today I just just want to say this. I just want to make this clear. There is nobody, there is not one single person in here that is not a sexual sinner. There is nobody in this room that is not a sexual sinner. And homosexuality is not on the highest plane of sin. It is a sin among all of the other sins. However, it is a sin. Just like all of the other sins. okay. So the Apostle Paul is going to speak to the general issue and the things that typify the sin of outside people. So he's talking to some Romans, he's talking to some Jewish people, and he's going to tell them about these sins and what the real problem is between us and God. Let me read. From verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so here we go. That's the good news that, that Jesus, uh, that, that God, through Jesus Christ, rather, is able to save. He can save. Why do we need saving? If you don't understand this, you don't understand the gospel at all. Why do you need saving? What purpose is there for you being saved? Have you been saved? Well, you might say, well, yeah. Well, like, why? Why were you saved? What were you saved from? Uh, Chapter uh, 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men... Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, all mankind in our natural state, although God created us perfectly, and we talked through this because of Adam and Eve's sin, original sin, all of us have become sinful. Romans 8, 16, I think. Might be 21. I'm going I'm to forget. God looks at mankind and he sees that all of mankind is evil. He looks at mankind, I think I just said Romans. I meant Genesis chapter 8, somewhere in there. All of humanity has been screwed up. The human race is sinful, only evil all the time. That's our problem. And so what happens is this, is that I'm not perfect in and of myself because of original sin. I've become totally depraved. And as a result, every part of my body, my mind, my will, my emotions... My thoughts, my feelings, every part of me is messed up. It's gone into every bit of me. The way that I think, the way that I feel, the way that I act, all of those things, it doesn't mean that I'm not capable of good. It just means that every part of me is tainted by sin. And there is no good thing that I can do to earn salvation. I'm completely removed from the ability to be saved by God in and of myself without going through Jesus Christ. Okay, so we suppress the truth. For what can be uh, known about God is plain to them, common grace. Where do babies come from? The rain fell. Oh, isn't that incredible? Oh, my, my, I'm cut. And all of a sudden, my skin heals itself. That's, that's amazing that my body just did that. No, there's, there's a God who's done this. What can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, me, you, us, the world, everything we touch and see and feel, so that we are without excuse. For although we knew God, we did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And we become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, we become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What happens is is this. We dishonor God and we worship his creation. We go after his creation and and we say, remember what the lie was that was told to Eve. No, uh, you won't die. God knows that you're going to be like him knowing good and evil. The promise of sin tells you this, that you'll be able to discern between good and evil. You are the one who will will be able to say what is right and wrong. We're suppressing the truth. We're keeping that down. We're saying, there is no God. Forget him. Oh, let's worship creation. Let's put, put people in jail for killing a cat. But it's not even a blip on the radar if we kill our kids in the womb. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. What happens is this. When we reject God, God gives us up to our sin. In our natural state, I don't have to do anything for this to actually be true. David says in Psalms, he says, surely I was conceived in sin. He was born sinful. And so what happens is this, is that when I'm born, I'm suppressing the truth. I'm exchanging the glory of the immortal God. I'm dishonoring him. And, and what happens is this, in my natural state, God has given me up to my desires. He, said, he says, I'm going to let you pursue that until You come to your end. Why do so many people who have been through difficult times, through addiction, through uh, life circumstances, through destruction, through all kinds of things, why do they come to God? It's because they've come to the end of themselves oftentimes. They've come to the end of themselves through their sin, and they finally come and they say, I have reached rock bottom. What does rock bottom mean? God gave me up to my sin, I was allowed to pursue it at full speed. And as a result, I came to the end of myself. God says this. Uh, he, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Let, oh, actually, backtrack. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, verse 24, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served uh, the, uh, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It's dishonoring God. We're exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Verse 26, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. As an example, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women And were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now what's happening there? What's the exchange? The truth about God for a lie. Sexual immorality of any kind exchanges the truth about God for a lie. And some of you are here and you know that you're in sexual immorality. Some of you are just in the midst of temptation and you're trying to fight it. Keep fighting. But if you've given in or if you are currently giving in, God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, He died for us. He didn't wait till you were perfect to die for you. He chose you, knowing all of the things that you would do. He chose you in Him, knowing that you would be in the midst and in the throes of sin. And He loves you deeply. But here's what's happening. We're exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Ultimately, what's taking place is that in our In our minds back in verse 21 but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened my thinking is messed up why because I'm sinful so when you and I come to the debate and we say but how can that be and we don't submit ourselves to the truth about God, and we say, I don't think that that's the way that it should be. Here's what's happening. We're trying to suppress the truth. We're saying, I am like God. I know good and evil. And God, you're keeping something from me. And essentially what we're saying to God is we're saying, God, you are not good. But that's not true. The scriptures tell us that he is immeasurably good. The scriptures tell us that he's completely righteous, that he's completely holy. And yet when we say, you know what, I don't think God knows what he's talking about. I'm going to change what the scriptures have to say. I'm going to do whatever I want. What's taking place is that we're submitting to our own thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. So that means... Even the way that I feel doesn't measure up to who God is. Now, do you get this? Our thinking and our feeling is not right. And so we have to submit to the Scriptures. Notice that Paul does not qualify what's happening here. I'm going to go through some objections if we have time here in a few minutes but one of the things that Paul says here is that for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another it doesn't qualify that it doesn't say that there's a kind of homosexuality that's okay or that this was too lustful And that's what made it wrong. If that were true, then only adultery that was lustful would be wrong. Because adultery is clearly condemned. So can I be an adulterer as long as I'm not really lustful? As long as I'm not really passionate? Can I be one flesh? Can I um, have sex with a prostitute? And that be okay as long as it's not lustful? And the answer is emphatically no. No. To say something else is to disregard the scriptures. In every passage that speaks about homosexuality, it gives no qualifiers. It simply says that homosexuality is wrong. But it is a sin that Jesus Christ went to the cross for. It's not the greatest sin. It is a sin. We are all sexual sinners. Verse 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There's nobody in this room that hasn't been included in this list on some level. You've gossiped. You've lied. You've been disobedient to your parents. There's nobody in this room. If you have same-sex attraction and and unwanted same-sex attraction at that, some some of you were born and you didn't want that. You didn't ask for this. You wanted to be normal, but you were born and you were like, all of a sudden, I feel like this. And many Christians try to push back on this, but I just I just want to tell you that the fall is the deal that has brought all of these problems on us: foolish thinking, darkened hearts, people who have been uh, born with birth defects. People who have been born with issues of the mind. And all of us have been born in that way. All of us desire things that we shouldn't desire. All of us have things. We have pet sins. We have besetting sins that we go after. And many of us would say, I don't want to desire that. Just like the person who has unwanted same-sex attraction does. And so you're no different than anybody else in this room. All of us have temptation. And we're so glad that you're here. Jesus went to the cross for your sin and for my sin. There's a major problem here, and that is that we not only do those things ourselves, but we give approval to others who do those things. So I want to take a look here. In Genesis chapter 1, as it talks about God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage. Chapter 2, verse 21 from Genesis says this. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man... And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now what does this speak to? This speaks to design. The verse just previous to this in chapter 2 is talking about how I will make a helper fit for him. Now why is it saying that? It's, it's talking about an external reality. It's talking about there's, 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 there's two things oftentimes. There's day and there's night. There's morning and there's evening. There's the heavens and the earth. There's sea and dry ground. And each one of these things is, is essentially an opposite. And the one is made better by the other because of their complementarity. And it's no different for the man and the woman. God creates the man and he says uh, he needs a helper. He needs a pairing. What will his pairing be? And so he takes a bone out of his side and he creates this woman. And Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Even though she's complementary. She's not the same as him. She's different. They're the same, but they're different. They're equal in dignity and value, and yet they're different. So there's this external reality of them being different, but then there's the physical reality, there's two genders. His anatomy corresponds, if you know what I mean, works together with her anatomy. His inability as a man corresponds to her ability as a helper fit for him. God's design is that they would be one flesh, so they're able to come together physically And one flesh, uh, in in the truest sense of the word, really means that they're they're able to come together in so many different ways. But this idea of one flesh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, he says, why would you uh, get together with a prostitute and become one flesh with her? When, When you have sex, one flesh takes place. And what's happening here is that what was intended by God, God's design, is that there would be two genders, that they would be fruitful and multiply. I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, but his inability corresponds to her ability, a helper fit for him. There's a practical. The command to be fruitful and multiply is only possible through two sexes. God's design is clear for marriage, that they would come together, God Uh, officiates the first wedding, that they would come together, that they would become one flesh with each other, and that they would be fruitful and multiply. The relational oneness, God, in His incredible goodness, created a very pleasurable act that not only can functionally bring about children, but also brings about climactic joy. God is really good because of that, right? God's intent and design for humanity is inextricably linked to the idea of two complementary sexes that can come together and fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. Now, what does that mean for people who cannot have children? What does that mean? Does that mean that you're not fulfilling God's command? No, it means this, that our creation has been subjected to futility, as it says in Romans 8.20, that creation has been subjected to futility. What's that mean? It means that creation is suffering under the weight of the fall, that everything is maligned. What, What should be normative in you is not, and perhaps there's infertility, It doesn't mean that you're not fulfilling God's command. It means this. It means that right now you're unable to because of infirmity in that sense. But God's design, His intent, is that there would be two complementary sexes, that they would only come together physically in marriage, that that marriage has the possibility of filling the earth and multiplying, that that marriage will be faithful to one another in a lifelong setting and that nothing from that would change. It brings about oneness in the context of the marriage. One of the things that Chris and I often ask, beware if you come to us for counseling, but sometimes we'll get into the particulars. We hear that there's fighting going on in a marriage. We hear that there's issues and we'll say... How have you guys been doing on an intimate basis? Are you guys having sex regularly? Why is that? Because Paul says in First Corinthians that you shouldn't withhold from one another. And guess what? If you're not having sex with your spouse, it shows something. It shows something. It, show, it shows that there's, that there's a breakdown between the two of you if you're having sex on a regular basis, it has a way of bringing you together. It has a way of like this internal spiritual element that like brings you together in closeness and you're bonded in a way that you can be bonded with no one else. That's why adultery is so insidious because you're becoming bonded with someone else. You're becoming bonded with someone else and it's outside of the will of God. Lastly, the spiritual. I've just talked about the external reality, but then the internal reality of being one flesh, the physical, the practical, the relational, and now the spiritual. Specifically dealing with the church. God, in his foreknowledge and in his wisdom, in his desire to create this symbiotic relationship that works together, in essence, makes the husband and wife a picture of, of Christ and his church. The church is called the bride of Christ. Many times those of us who like to think that we're manly think I don't like to picture myself in a wedding dress. It's just weird for me, right? But on a theological level, the scriptures call us the bride of Christ. And Jesus Christ is the groom. He's the groom. And so what Paul says In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 to 32, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What's he referring to? He's saying, Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember when God created all things? Remember when he created complementary genders? Remember when he created one flesh? Remember that creation element, that points to the reality of Christ and his church, and he's going to say this next. He's going to say, this mystery is profound, verse 32 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The idea of a husband and wife coming together is a perfect, or I should say imperfect, picture of Jesus Christ and His church. Same-sex marriage reduces that analogy to Christ marrying Christ or the church marrying the church. God's design is important. It dishonors Him it dishonors his church. It dishonors his design when we do anything else with it. Now, I don't expect that our culture is going to align with us on this on any level. I am, I'm assuming that it will only go from bad to worse. But I can tell you this, that God has given us common grace by giving us a family unit. For ages upon ages, the world has believed That stability within a society happens through the family, husband, wife, kids. And within the last five or 10 years, that has changed. There are nearly no examples throughout the history of the church that have ever agreed that homosexuality was an acceptable practice. There's no way to take a look at the Old Testament and somehow throw that aside. I'll deal with that in just a second. There's no way to look at any of the passages in the New Testament and somehow um, sidestep them and say, well, they didn't really know about loving, monogamous homosexual relationships. That's not true. We have a serious problem here, guys. There's no scripture that even comes close to backing up same-sex relations. The entire Bible, the entire Bible, from the beginning where God creates uh, man and woman, marries them or officiates the wedding, they become one flesh, to the end of the Scriptures in Revelation, to the wedding supper of the Lamb, between the bride, the church, and Jesus Christ himself. The entire thing celebrates honors, lifts up two-gendered marriage. Man and woman coming together. Song of Solomon overflows with love, talking about the sexual relationship, the idea of two becoming one flesh. Repeatedly throughout the Scriptures it speaks to two-gendered marriage. There are no examples in the scriptures of anything else. There's no way that you and I can look at the scriptures and say, you know what? I'm not sure it meant that. And since that's so clouded, why don't we just go ahead and do our own thing? There's no way. You can't honestly do that. Let me get to um, some objections here. First of all, I want to read you a quote from Rosaria Butterfield. She says, we violate the... Oh, let me stop right there for just a second. Rosaria Butterfield is a former lesbian who deals with same-sex attraction, read the Bible over and over again, came to the conclusion that she was wrong, changed her lifestyle, married a preacher and is currently writing books. If you want more information about this, you need to read her book, Openness Unhindered. She has another book that came before that, which I'm not going to remember right now. You can look it up. Rosaria Butterfield. I love the last name. The Butterfields. She says, We violate those we love when we try to supplant Christ by trying to fill His role or by removing ourselves from this lavish outpouring of love, by refusing to take God's point of view on the matter of sin, its nature, origin, and consequences. Christ loves his people best. We cannot love as he did. We cannot suffer as he did. We cannot redeem our lives, our worlds, or our relationships. And she's saying through that, when we are not honest with our culture. And some of you might say, you know what, I didn't know any better. And that's okay. That's okay. Let's educate ourselves through the scriptures, through godly people, that are going to help us understand that we're doing people a disservice when we're not telling them the truth. We're doing people a disservice when we listen to those arguments and say, you know what, maybe you're right. We're doing people a disservice when, when, when we don't know what we're talking about or when we're misleading them. And ultimately, it may cost people their eternal life. When you encourage someone to remain in sin or you approve of it, it only says this. You're saying to that person, it's okay to find your identity your ultimate meaning and value in something other than Jesus Christ. The definition of being a Christian is somebody who says, I no longer know what is good and evil. I never did. I was wrong. I need to find my ultimate meaning and purpose and value in you, God, through Jesus Christ. And that means that every sin in my life is an effort at me meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way by becoming my own God or making something else in my life God. Let me deal with some objections here real quick. There's objections that um, are innumerable. Um, before, you, before you get to that next slide... Um, I, I read a review by a guy who claims to be a Christian uh, in support of same-sex marriage and homosexuality. And um, I believe that his effort was to confuse people so much with his ability to talk about uh, the, the history of uh, homosexuality, uh, to get into Greek words and Hebrew words and things of that nature. So I want to tell you this. Just because someone sounds smart does not mean that they've submitted themselves to God and said, I am futile in my thinking and my foolish heart has been darkened. It means that they may have some really convincing arguments that simply are coming from a source of sin. And so I want to caution you big time in what you listen to. I'm not saying don't read it. I'm saying be careful what you let into your heart in these things. Objection number one. Why is it wrong if no one is hurt? If two consenting same-sex adults want to be married and have a loving, monogamous relationship, why should that not be allowed? Now I think there's, there's a couple of things here, one, um, uh, should I try to disrupt a same-sex wedding? I don't believe that's in order. Should I try to get in the way of those things? Should I announce my disapproval in an obnoxious way? No. Um, But what it does mean is, what do you believe? What do you believe? How can you kindly talk about that, maybe later down the road? Build relationships with people that are in this lifestyle because it's no different than any lifestyle that's abhorrent to God. There's many people who are in many different types of sin and we need to love all of them. Sexual sin is against self. So if it's not hurting anyone, why, uh, why should we not condone it? First Corinthians 6, sexual sin is against self. 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's, It's not that you're just sinning against someone else because there's two partners involved in that, but you're sinning against yourself. You're the primary person that's being sinned against in sexual sin. God says it's important, And so therefore, it is important. As a Christian, you should not sin in this way because you're sinning against yourself. Secondly, sexual sin is antithetical to sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 7. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will for you is that you would become sanctified, that you would become better. It's progressive sanctification. You're not perfected one day. In your actions, God looks at you and says, you're perfect. But yet we still act sinfully. There's a paradox there. And so what are we supposed to do with that? We're supposed to confess and repent, not remain in unrepentant sin. But this is the will of God, that you'd become better, that you'd become more like Jesus, that you would become sanctified. And what does sanctification mean? That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The passion of lust, it's the same thing. Sexual immorality is pornea. It is any kind of sexual sin. It's any kind of sexual sin. Sanctification, in order for that to take place in your life, you must give up sexual immorality. Repent of it often, give that to God continually. It may not be gone immediately, but you must give that up. Next slide. Sexual sin dishonors God's design, as I've spent the sermon talking about. Objection number two, why do Christians pick and choose which Old Testament laws they want to follow? In the book of Leviticus, in two different places, um, it It says that homosexuality is wrong, that it's an uh, uh, abomination, oh my gosh, wow, whoa. I did not mean that, but it's funny, right, we'll take it, all right, all right, God bless our president, we should be praying for him, uh, praying for wisdom for him, um, and yet, and even loving him when we disagree with him, so I want to be clear about that. I'm not about to laugh. I'm serious. Um, Why why do Christians pick and choose which uh, Old Testament laws they want to follow? So I'm going to follow the Levitical law, and I'm going to hold other people to the Levitical law that they should not engage in homosexuality, but I'm not going to follow the law that says that I shouldn't eat shellfish or that I shouldn't engage in intimacy during that time of the month or that, I mean, you could go through the line of things. We, do we pick and choose which Old Testament laws we'll, we'll choose to follow? This is a theological misunderstanding. Next slide. There are two types of laws in the Old Testament. There are ceremonial clean laws which are no longer in force because the sacrificial system is fulfilled in Jesus. The law, the ceremonial, ceremonial clean Laws or the sacrificial system was all about, like, if you touch a dead person, or if you uh, touch a a dead animal, or if you end up being intimate when you shouldn't be, or if you end up eating shellfish, or if you you end up doing all of these things, they make you spiritually unclean. And so they had to go through a process of becoming clean. When Jesus comes, and I could go into a bunch of scripture, uh, Hebrews chapter 9 is helpful. Uh, But when Jesus comes, he fulfills all of those sacrificial system laws. He fulfills the clean laws. So those are set aside. However, it doesn't mean that we don't read them because they point to a reality that Jesus has fulfilled in us. However, they are no longer binding. What is still binding is the moral law, the moral law. Moral laws still stand. Hebrews 10, 16, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. There's much other scripture. Christians for ages have always believed that this is the case. Two types of laws. One's been filled in Jesus. The other one still stands, the moral laws. Homosexuality is a moral law. Shellfish, a sacrificial, ceremonial, clean law. Objection three. The biblical writers were unaware of loving, monogamous, homosexual relationships. So what they actually are condemning is pederasty, which is man-boy relationships. Obviously, there's an aggressor there. Rape or the like. So what they're saying is this, that no one really knew about about this. Now, I want to tell you that's a street-level argument because people who who are knowledgeable and people who are knowledgeable of uh, of various things uh, don't believe this. Even people who know the Bible and support homosexuality don't believe this. Why? Because you can look back through uh, history. Let me go through my my list here. All homosexuality passages condemn the act, not the motive, intent, or situation. None of those passages are qualified by any of those things. It simply says that a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It simply says that these things should not happen. They should not take place. They should not exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. Most biblical scholars who even affirm homosexuality all agree that there are clear examples of loving, monogamous, homosexual relationships in antiquity, which is early, early history. Now, why would that be important? Because people are saying the biblical writers weren't aware of nice homosexuality. They were only aware of bad homosexuality. And we don't have bad homosexuality today. We have nice homosexuality or good homosexuality. But that's not true. You can look through history. You can read all of these authors if you want. I can send you some books. I can show you these things. Uh, Fantastic article uh, by uh, Tim Keller. We'll put that on our resources page. In regard to a review on someone else's book um, debunking what that man has said. Um, lastly, most biblical scholars all agree that when, scriptures, uh, that when the scriptures speak of homosexuality, it condemns it as immoral and wrong. You may decide that you, that you think that homosexuality is right, but you will not get that from the scriptures. You will not get that from the scriptures. Now, what should we do how should we respond how should we encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ or otherwise for the same-sex attracted person the person who has unwanted uh, same-sex attraction um, or someone who has wanted same-sex attraction here's here's some advice for you if you want to know who Jesus is first of all regularly attend one Bible-believing church. Get into a church that believes the Bible as it is. The way that you will know that is if they say things that you don't like normally, okay? If they're asking you for seed money, if they're saying you've got to give money to God to have faith whatever, bad church, bad church. If they're saying, I know that that says that, but that's not what I believe, bad church. If they read things that you don't like and then they affirm it, that's a good church. engage in Christian community where confession, repentance are expected and the gospel is held up as the only hope for sinners you cannot save yourself it is only through Jesus Christ he has paid it all all to him I owe read your Bible faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ Romans 10 17 you cannot develop a relationship this goes for any Christian by the way And this is a list for anybody. Uh, You cannot grow in faith by not reading your Bible. It's the antithesis of growing in faith. Read your Bible. Hear the word of Christ. Accountability. Be open, honest, relentlessly committed to confession and repentance. Read books. Read Rosaria Butterfield's uh, books. Read a book from Sam Alberry. Both of them, same-sex attracted people. Uh, I I don't believe Sam Albury has ever acted on it. Um, I believe Rosaria Butterfield was a a lesbian. Fantastic books. I've read them both. I've read at least four books, maybe five, countless articles on this. Uh, There are lots of resources out there that I can send you if you would like more information on it. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has a great uh, book on this as well um, that just lays out the biblical case over and over again in some very important ways. To our church. To those who are not same-sex attracted, let me start with this. Don't be homophobic. Do not be homophobic. People who are gay, struggling with a gay lifestyle, or fully committed in a gay gay lifestyle, are welcome to attend our church. They're welcome to attend our church. Okay? We let you in, didn't we? Right, and you're a sinner just like they're a sinner so we want to let them in it's not the healthy who need a doctor it's the sick and we're all sick here in a bad way, not the good way but. don't harass gay people and do not tolerate harassment from others whether it's on Facebook or it's, or it's in any type of venue Never tolerate that. That is out of line. It does not matter that they are gay in that sense or that they have issues with that or or what have you. Don't tolerate bashing. Always be loving. Don't allow other people to do that. Don't joke about homosexuality. We, We don't use the term, that's so gay. We don't do it we we want to remove ourselves from that that's insulting to people who are struggling with that understand that their biggest problem is not that they're gay or that they have same sex attraction their biggest problem is that they need Jesus if they're a christian they need to apply the gospel if they're a non-christian they need to learn the gospel and become a disciple of Jesus Christ both of them require that they know and understand that Jesus went to the cross to pay for that sin and it is through realizing that that we become joyful over what God has done for us love and care for everyone including those struggling or engaged in same-sex attraction understand that someone may never be completely healed from same-sex attraction it is possible but it is not the norm and I would say this that God fearing good, praying, spirit-believing people have have not been healed completely. Just like you have ongoing sin temptations, they do as well. It may not ever be healed, and I would encourage you to not try to pray the gay away, as they say, um, but that you would pray for them, that they would submit to God in all things, okay? have a robust theology of singleness. We need that more here. Singles, you are not less important here because you're single. We must have you in our midst. It is critical that you're a part of our church. There is no reason. It may not be easy. It may be lonely. But we must have you in our midst serving alongside of us. And with us in every aspect. And for those of you that are married, have families and things of that nature, you've got to invite these folks over that don't have families, that don't have connections. Invite them over for the holidays. Show them what Christian community is. Don't let them be alone if they don't want to be. But invite them in. Love on them. Be a part of the church singles. Use your time that is not spent in picking kids up and taking them uh, to, to school and sports and all of those things. Use your time to serve Jesus and to love people. And then lastly, ask about the whole person, not just that struggle. You are not the sum total of just one sin. You have lots of different things going on. If you're like me, you might eat too much sometimes. You might get too concerned about money. You might gossip occasionally. You may have lied. You may have, what, name it. That's not the only thing going on in their life. Jesus came to save sinners, of which I'm the worst, and each one of us needs to believe that. Each one of us needs to believe that. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. If you're struggling today, I want to pray for you. If you need need something, if you want information, you can email us, you can uh, contact us in any way. There's connection cards in front of you. You could fill one of those out and just drop them in the boxes as you leave. We'd love to hear from you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for your wisdom this morning. Lord, I pray for those that are are feeling convicted um, because they've had same sex attraction or they've engaged with it. Maybe they've never told anybody. God, we know that you love them and we love them so much. We know that they're suffering because they feel like there's a huge stigma uh, attached to this sin. And, Lord, we ask that you would just allow them to come clean. Lord, we ask that, that even if they haven't sinned in this, that they'd tell someone that they're just attracted in this way, that they'd get it out on the table so that it can be prayed for, so that they can be loved on, so that we can know how to help. Lord, we ask you for this. I pray that we'd be loving and caring towards those that, that might hate us, that might call us bigots, Lord, I pray that we'd go out of our way to absolutely blow their mind with the kindness that we're going to show to them. Lord, show us how to be kind uh, to folks that would feel this way and to speak kindly of people who uh, are gay, who are living that lifestyle, Lord, to befriend them, have them over for dinner, enjoy them, enjoy their company, enjoy their God-given gifts, Uh, enjoy them um, as people. And um, Lord, to be Christ to them, to be you to them. It's in your name we pray, amen.